from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Philippe Copeland a Baha'i who grew up in search of a spiritual community that recognized what he recognized, which was the oneness of all religions. He has a blog called Baha'i Thought, where he addresses current events from a Baha'i perspective. It took me a minute or so to get the sound right, so it sounds a little funky at the beginning, but be patient, you'll enjoy this interview. I started the interview by asking Philippe where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I sort of moved around a little bit. You could say that it was a movement in three parts. And I was born in McMinnville, Tennessee, in the Tennessee Valley. And in the beginning, I sort of went back and forth between the country where my grandmother was living, uh, where my mother was born, and Nashville, which is where my parents met and fell in love, and where I came into the world. So I was there for a while, then my parents moved to Florida, to Panama City. Uh, my father was looking to advance himself, he was a biology professor, and my mother was just starting out in nursing. And so we lived in Panama City, across from the beach, it was a lot of fun. Uh, my dad said that he would come home from work, and there would be various creatures crawling around in the sink uh, <laughs> that I had picked up you know, on the beach. It was really a lovely, lovely time in my life. And my sister was born, and they decided to move closer to home, so they went back to Tennessee until I was 10. I guess during my Tennessee days, um, it was a sort of typical southern upbringing, um, a lot of extended family, spending lots of time uh, with my parents, parents and cousins and uncles and so on. And, uh, it was very family-oriented. And then, you know, my father uh, was having some difficulties related to racism at his job. He decided that, you know, given issues of race in the South at that time, his family didn't have a future to remain there. We picked up and we moved to New England. It was very strange, <laughs> you know. I, I think that a lot of times I think that my family were sort of like domestic immigrants, you know what I mm -hmm, mean? Sure. It was really that immigrant story of saying, okay, Let's move to a different place where there are different opportunities. But we faced some of those challenges. You know, we left behind several generations of extended mm. family and a very close kinship network. And it was just the four of us in this very strange new culture uh, with weird accents. I have an interesting story. I, I interviewed Dr. Ash Hartwell, uh -huh. and he grew up in Hawaii. And, yeah. of course, he like traveled all over the world as an educator and he said, of all the places he went, New England was the biggest culture shock he ever experienced. <laughs> <laughs> so I can understand what you're talking about. 
It was funny. I remember one of the things the kids would, uh, when I first moved to Connecticut, this is Connecticut, Norwich, Connecticut, was that they would make me say various words <laughs> so they could make fun of my accent. <laughs> it was a challenging time. You know, we lived in a sort of working class uh, neighborhood. You know, my father was just getting his sort of feet under him. My mother had just finished nursing school and was just sort of starting out. My sister and I were really young. Um, I was 10. My sister was 6. She was a little thing. That period of my life was very challenging. I think at the time I was too young to appreciate really the importance of strong extended family and what we left behind. Um, I just knew that I wasn't happy. That was sort of my state for a considerable time. <laughs> mm-hmm. From like 10 on, was a sense of feeling somewhat displaced and not fitting in anywhere. It's interesting because after I became a Baha'i, a lot of those experiences started to make a little bit of sense in a different way. You know, I was at an age where I I was somewhat self-conscious. I was starting to think about myself, my life, and the world. You know, one of the things I did as a way to cope with my feelings of displacement and some loneliness was I really was an avid reader. I was a real bookworm. I read a lot of fantasy novels, you know, like Piers Anthony and J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, it was interesting because it gave me a chance to sort of get out of the world in which I was living, which was sort of constrained, you know. I didn't necessarily feel particularly, you know, powerful or heroic or full of valor. You know, reading these books gave me a chance to sort of experience myself as being heroic and creating a kind of alternate universe um, in my mind, in my imagination. It gave me a lot of joy that time in my life and being able to read. And it really was a real contrast to my social life and my experience at school. You know how kids are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially <laughs> you know? if you're different in any it's way. A, it, was a, it was a challenging time. Sure. Yeah, also, you know, my, my parents, I think, also were deeply affected by this change in culture and a sense of isolation. And because I didn't have that extended network of caring adults, when my nuclear family began to sort of have difficulty, we really didn't have any support. And we also didn't have the benefit of belonging to a faith community uh, because that was something else that we had left behind, moving from the South to New England. And it really wasn't until I became a Baha'i that I experienced what it was like to be part of a faith community again, which was about 10 years later uh, after the move. Yeah, so they just sort of dropped any kind of faith association after moving to New England? Yeah, well, I think my parents, they were sort of secular Christians, like a lot of people of their generation, and it was really the matriarchs of their family that were the strong religious people. And once they were thousands of miles away, my parents were no longer under that influence. And so I think that they didn't have a independent desire to be part of a faith community. And it's interesting because after I became a Baha'i, they actually told me a lot about their own experiences as young people in the Christian community. And they began to explain to me why they didn't raise my sister and I to be religious. And it was really fascinating because they had never talked about these things before in my life. And there was just this outpouring of stories and experiences they had and why 
they weren't part of the church anymore. My father at one point had considered being a black Muslim very seriously. You know, he was involved mm-hmm. in the civil rights movement. He was interested in the Black Panthers, and so he went through that stage, like a lot of young black men, of being very attracted to the Nation of Islam and its message of African-American empowerment and self-reliance and the development of character, importance of family, and so on. And uh, one of the things he told me after I became a Baha'i, because of course if he had become a Muslim, I would have had a very different upbringing, I'm sure. But he said that he sort of got to the edge of that moment of decision and he listened to a lot of what the religious leaders were saying, and he, he felt that he, he heard a lot of emphasis on sort of hostility towards whites, and that it really turned him off. You know, even though he was sort of angry and frustrated, um, he didn't like the message, and he felt it was negative and polarizing. And he said, well, that's it. This is the last religion thing I was going to do. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm done with the religion, yeah. and that was sort of his journey. And then my mother, her journey was that she was a very precocious young girl, very intelligent, and she would ask a lot of, you know, needlesome questions at church and get herself into trouble. You know, she'd ask all these sort of tricky questions about the Bible, and those questions were not welcomed. And because her questions weren't welcomed, she became disillusioned and said, well, there's things about this that don't quite fit, but nobody wants to talk about it. And so I don't trust this. I don't want to be a part of a faith community where I'm not able to think for myself and to ask questions and to challenge the common understanding. And so she reached a similar conclusion that, you know, the best thing is to, you know, be spiritual, have a set of sort of Christian-informed values, but to be independent of the church. And so my sister and I were raised in that kind of a milieu I mean, if we had stayed in the South, we probably would have been much more active in the church because our extended family would have insisted on it. But out of, outside of that context, my parents were really free. You know, they could say, well, we don't want to do that. <laughs> and we're not going to do that, you know, and we're not going to have our kids do that. And so I didn't grow up with that. And, you know, at the time... I didn't really know the difference. You know, I, I remembered going to Sunday school, and I actually found it very enjoyable and fun. And, of course, I was a child, so, you know, you have sort of the picture book Bibles, and you spend a lot of time reading about Noah's Ark because there's animals, and kids love animals anyway. So <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just, there's sure. a lot of fun, and Jesus was fun, and he was loving, and you would sing these wonderful songs. About Jesus loves me, this I know, mm. and I just I used to love those songs. Mm. But then that sort of part of life was just it was just gone, and so really I was just left with myself and my parents and my little sister in this really strange new environment where things were extremely different. One of the things I noticed uh, with the kids was that their behavior, the standard of behavior for children, was very different than what I was accustomed to. Uh, before I moved to New England, I wouldn't even think a curse word in my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would just be sure that somebody would hear my thought, <laughs> and I would be smacked. You know? <laughs> it was sure. scandalous. Right. And I was on the playground, and everybody was cursing up a storm. I mean, I was completely blown away. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Mm. And the other thing was that most of the kids were from families that were divorced. And where I was from, that was highly unusual. 
And when it happened, it was scandalous. And I knew enough to know that there was something very different about the culture in New England, in the part of New England I was experiencing. And I sort of looked around. I said, hmm, I don't know what about this I like or dislike. But it was sort of, it was sort of confusing. And I was at an age of beginning to question these things and try to ponder and understand people and why they act the way that they act. You know, all these issues related to being a black American in an environment where people were at best ambivalent about that. And also, I think, being of a different sort of class status. I mean, my parents were both from a background of poverty, but they were sort of first-generation, middle-class black Americans, black professionals. And that was very different than the other African-American children I was around. And so I got some flack. There was a sort of class disconnect, you know, because either one, you know, many of them didn't have fathers in the home at all, and I did. And, you know, we would talk about what our parents did and, you know, their parents were blue-collar workers. Blue-collar types, and I'd say, oh, my father's a biologist, you know. Mm. And it was just another thing that made me strange, <laughs> you know, and not really fitting in, you know. It was like, hmm, that's interesting. So that was another challenge, sort of reconcile this sense of dislocation geographically and also culturally with working-class blacks in mm. the area that I was living in. Yeah. And so that was my childhood up until around, you know, high school age. In high school... Well, actually, let me back up a little bit. My saving grace was that I was a very good athlete. And so that was an arena in which I excelled and in which I was able to gain respect through competition. What was your sport? Well, I played baseball. It was interesting. It was another sort of stereotype-busting thing. I never learned how to play basketball (laughs) because that was not what my father and his peers played. They all played baseball when he was growing up. That's what you did. And so that's what he taught his son (laughs) to do. And so that was my sport. And I was pretty good. I was relatively skilled at that. Um, I was very fast, and, you know, I had pretty good hand-eye coordination. And I just had a lot of pluck. You know, I would kind of go at anything and try to hit it. And most of the time, I did pretty well. That gave me a certain level of grudging respect from some of the other kids around, that I was good at that. And then when I got to high school... I got into track and field, and I really excelled at that. I actually was a varsity athlete in my freshman year, which was highly unusual. Again, it was sort of my saving grace because people would kind of have attitude and they would want to test your manhood and stuff, and I was fast on the field. <laughs> and so they said, well, okay, he's not so bad. He's got some skills. You've got to give him some space. The kid is fast. You know, mm. He's strong and he's fast. And he can run as fast as kids older than him and all this other stuff. And so that was a nice taste of sense of competence and victory in that arena. But then something really funny happened. One of the guys on the track team uh, with me said, hey, they're having tryouts for this play. And I said, oh, that's kind of interesting. I'll just go check it out. You know, I'd never done anything theatrical before. So I went and tried out for this play. It was a chorus line. And so it was a musical on top of that. And, of course, I, at that point I had no idea that I could sing at all. So, so the whole thing was just, it was really out of my depth. I'm sort of like, hmm, what am I doing here? But I tried out. I got a part in this musical. I did very well. 
and got quite a bit of acclaim. Realized that I could hold a tune pretty well. And that started my um, involvement in the performing arts. And so I completely made a switch from being this sort of star athlete to performing arts person, much to the, the distress of my coaches <laughs> and my father. Who that was <laughs> it was the mutually exclusive decision? Well, at the time, yeah. I mean, I think part of it was just the demand. The performing mm -hmm. arts was very demanding mm -hmm. of time. And so it was hard to do both things at the same time. And really after Chorus Line, I mean, it was a life-changing experience because it was like reading those books but in a three-dimensional way. And for a certain amount of time, I would get to pretend that I was somebody else. And that was acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and usually these people were much more interesting than I was <laughs> in my life. And also just to get that acclaim and encouragement and applause it was really quite extraordinary because mm. I didn't think I was good at anything but sports and schoolwork. I was kind of a nerd. And so it was really a discovery for me that I had this whole other talent that I didn't know anything about. Yeah. And that also gained people's attention in a positive way. It really started me on a four-year journey of doing a lot of performing arts, with doing choral work, doing vocal jazz, doing musicals, doing plays. I did a lot of dancing. I did folk dancing. I did ballet. I mean, wow. I really... You know. So you found out you played sports, you found out you sang, and you found out you could dance. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it was really quite something. It was really a very powerful, formative experience for me to be a part of the culture of the theater and the performing arts community. And also, it was just a different set of friends. You know, It was a different mm -hmm. crowd than the athletic crowd. Um, it kind of opened my world up a little bit, you know, and exposed me to things that were new. I mean, I did magical singing at one point, and I learned all about medieval singing, and you know, I didn't know anything about that stuff. It was really a lot of fun, and uh, I think it was probably the best part of my high school experience was that whole performing arts experience. And I said to the then the director of the performing arts program that I really felt that the performing arts saved my life because I was really having a lot of difficulty, like a lot of teenagers, and it gave me a sense of esteem and self-worth that sports had never done. Really? You felt yeah. that if you had continued just doing the sports, it would not have been enough to carry you through? No. It accessed a different part of me. It was really my heart. The sports was my mind and my body, but the arts was my heart and my passion. It was very positive. It was the most positive thing of that period of my life. I mean, I'll never forget it. And it's interesting because, you know, even now, people who knew me at that time, you know, they'll talk about the various plays I was in. I really became a bit of a celebrity in my town due to my seeming gift for this stuff. Well, when you're performing in front of hundreds and hundreds, you tend to be recognizable in the uh, school community. Yeah. So uh, what happened after high school for you? After high school, I went to University of Massachusetts at Amherst. I could have went to a variety of places, but I wanted to go to a place that was far enough away from home to feel some independence, but close enough, so that, you know, in time of need, <laughs> <laughs> my parents could, could get to me. 
I didn't want to go to the University of Connecticut because all my friends were going there, and it just seemed kind of lame you know, yeah. to do that. Right. So I said, let me get out of here. Let me get out of Norwich. Let me get out of Connecticut and kind of go off. And I really saw it as an adventure. Being a kind of literary person, I saw myself as one of these young men from one of these like 19th century novels. He's sort of going off to find his fortune and <laughs> studying with professors and all this kind of business. I had a very active fascination. <laughs> and, uh, you know, little did I know what I was going to discover while I was there, which was the Baha'i faith. I was on to something. I just didn't know what I was on to. So how did that happen? Well, the first few years of UMass, I was a very political young person. I got really sort of radicalized through the sort of typical somewhat liberal liberal arts education you receive in college, and I really became aware of all kinds of social injustices and really the kind of lack of preparedness I think I had received in high school for dealing with these big social problems uh, that we didn't really talk about, you know, when I was a teenager. So, you know, I was always sort of into agitation. I would sit around with students and we would philosophize about how we were going to change the world and We'd engage in protest and direct action, and we'd take over buildings. And I was very much involved with sort of issues of race on the campus. And one of the things that happened to me during that time that was important was there was a philosophy professor that sort of took me under his wing. He was really quite an interesting guy, kind of older guy. He read a, an editorial that I put in the school paper about a visit by a controversial sort of black intellectual uh, who, of course, got everybody upset because he was saying very disparaging things about Jews. I was in the audience that night, and I witnessed a lot of very unfortunate, disunifying behaviors on the part of both the black students and the Jewish students. And I wrote to the school paper, and I said, this is what I saw, and this is what was the truth. Some of what you're hearing is really not accurate. You know, people aren't telling you the whole story. But he was very impressed with this. You were saying in this article to the paper that this is the truth. What did you mean by that? Well, what I was saying was that many different people had been writing about what had happened that night. And basically what people would do is that they would talk about how their side was really good and the other side was really bad, where really everybody was acting out and doing things that I found really troubling and upsetting and not just. And so I wrote and I said, well, this is what happened. He really kind of set off a firestorm. And I lost a lot of friends over that. Interesting. You know, people were very angry because I was supposed to take their side. And I didn't do that. Mm. You know, I took a stand on principle. But I earned the respect of this professor. Now, have you ever done that before, Philippe? Stand against the current thinking on principle? I think that I had. But I, I think that, that that moment was really pivotal for me. Because it was my freshman year, you know, I was new, I was 18 years old. I didn't realize the response I was going to get. I just knew that I was, I was angry. I didn't think it was right. You know, the way I was raised was that you were supposed to be fair-minded and truthful. You know, that's just sure. how people were supposed to act. And so I put it out there, and I actually got into a lot of trouble. And for several years, some of the, the Jewish students, unfortunately, saw me as an enemy, yeah. and that was the way I was perceived by them, was this sort of hostile black student, anti-Semite person. So I had to kind of contend with that. That was a new experience for me. I'd never been accused of bigotry before. 
mm. I'd always been on the receiving end of it. And so that was, that was a new experience, indeed. It was very formative. Uh, but the good thing was that I was able to get involved in a positive way in a lot of the work around black and Jewish relations on the campus. I did a lot of speaking. I participated in a lot of forums around this whole issue of sort of different cultural groups trying to uh, be unified. Anyway, all that was going on. But, you know, I really didn't see religion as part of the solution to any of these problems. I was actually very hostile to religion. I had a bit of a Marxist bent. And uh, I remember I made my girlfriend cry. She was Catholic because I laid into her about religious people so so ruthlessly that she just burst into tears. You know, that, that was my level of hostility towards religion. And then the thing that changed that was that in my sophomore year, my grandmother, my father's mother, died somewhat suddenly. I was whisked away, like literally from class, to her funeral. It was like all these different parts of my life sort of collided with each other because I found myself back in the black church after many years of not being in that kind of environment and a very spiritually charged uh, setting, a profound grief. I was watching my father weep for the first time that I could recall in my life. I was suddenly surrounded by all this extended family that I hadn't been interacting with for a long time. And uh, I was sort of immersed in a really religious experience. And one of the things that happened was that we were able to give testimony or make remarks. The family could make remarks. I found myself go up to the altar, and I told the story of the last conversation I had had with my grandmother before she died. And being kind of a young person and not realizing that I wasn't going to be able to speak to her again, in this world, I was somewhat flippant and distracted, mm-hmm. not taking it all that seriously. She always ended every conversation with saying that I should be a good boy, be a good boy. And she said it with a great deal of, of feeling. And of course, those are the last words I, I heard her say in my life. And so I told people this story, and so I, I made a vow to my grandmother uh, that I would strive to be a good boy and to become a better man in front of all these people. When I thought about it later, I realized it was the first conscious, personal, religious thing I'd ever done before. Because I wasn't even sure I believed in God or a soul. But here I am in front of all these people, you know, making a vow on my grandmother's soul. Something changed in my heart. I came back and I thought, if religion can be a source of solace to people in times like this, it can't be all bad. You know, there must be some good to it. My heart really softened, and I think that that was really the beginning of my spiritual search. It was right after my grandmother's death, and I actually began to read spiritually oriented things. For instance, I got really into Gandhi, and I was interested in, before my grandmother died, I was interested in, in him as sort of a social philosopher. But I realized that his inspiration was religious. And I became very curious about the Bhagavad Gita. He was always referring to the Gita as sort of his foundation. So I went and I bought a copy. And I read it. And I don't know if you're familiar with the way that the Gita flows, but it's, it's a dialogue. It's a dialogue between Arjuna, who is a young warrior, and Krishna, who is in his chariot. And Arjuna is about to go to war. 
and he sees that many of the people he's going to fight are his own family members. And he says, how can I fight my own family members? And it becomes the impetus for Krishna to not only talk about the reality of this battle that he's about to fight and why he needs to fight it, but really the relationship between God and humanity. It's really quite beautiful. And I had a mystical experience. That's the only way I could describe it. At one point, I really felt as if God was speaking to me directly through this holy text, that I was being instructed by God. I can tell you, I get emotional now even talking about it, I never had this sensation reading any great thinker or philosopher before. I said, there's something different about these words. You know, I cried. I'm crying now, and this was such a long time ago. And the first thing I did after I closed the Gita was I I immediately went and picked up the Bible, and I started to read it. You know, really read it with my own eyes and not through the eyes of others. It was like a completely new book. This incredible world of love, of power, of majesty, of stories of heroism and sacrifice just kind of leapt up to my eyes. And this covenant of God with humanity. And it was so powerful that I couldn't put it down. <laughs> you know, mm. I just kept reading it and reading it, and I kept exclaiming. You know, I was sitting in my room, I was like, wow! Wow! <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that. I mean, it was yeah. just, it was like the most incredible uh, adventure love story that I'd ever read in my life. Sort of going back to your childhood reading days. Oh, yeah. But with a completely different power. And one of the things that happened was it, I started teaching spontaneously. I started to talk about Jesus to people, including my old political leftist colleagues. They were really quite astonished. <laughs> As you could imagine. You were quite bold about it? Well, I just couldn't help it. I mean, yeah. it was like anything. You, you are excited about something. I mean, it was like I was, you know, I was as excited about Jesus as I used to be about Mark. And I would just talk to people about, wow, do you realize how radical this guy is and how transformative his ministry was and what he was trying to do in the world? They really weren't hearing it. But I was so intoxicated that I had to read anything and everything I could find about the Spirit. And so I did. I mean, I read everything from Buddhism to Zoroastrianism to Native American religions. I learned how to read runes. I learned how to read tea leaves. I got into astrology. I mean, I just really kind of went off on a a wild, spiritual, just like a feast. I wasn't prejudiced against anything. I mean, anything I found, I would study it. One of the things that excited me was that there seemed to be an underlying message to all these things. I mean, whether you were talking about indigenous religions or Western religions, they all seem to be talking about the same thing. And I was really perplexed because people around me didn't seem to understand that. And they didn't seem very interested to know about it. And so I said, I want to be able to tell people that religion is one, that really we should recognize that. So I started to study religion. I got into it in a serious way in my academics. I would read constantly. And then I realized that the only thing I hadn't read was the Quran. 
And so I went to my mother and I said, Mom, will you get me a copy of the Quran for Christmas? She said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so Christmas morning comes. My glorious Quran is wrapped. Never forget it, it was a little red covered book, English translation of the Holy Quran. I took it and I spent the winter time reading it. And it was really quite an experience. I had a very similar experience that I had had when I read the Gita and when I had read the Bible. And I, I heard the voice of God. It was very clear. And I said, wow, this book is the truth. <laughs> you know, This book is from God, and people should know that. So I started doing the same thing. I started telling people about Islam and talking about the Quran and talking about Muhammad, and I went and I got various books about Muhammad and his life and the traditions, and I started putting quotes on my dorm room door from all different religions, from the Bible, from the Quran, from Buddhism. I was just running around trying to tell everybody about religion and how transformative and powerful it was. At one point, I really got involved with Islamic mysticism, started reading the poets like Rumi and Hafez, and etc., and their emphasis on the love of God, that love inspiring you to love everyone, regardless of their background. And so I took it on as kind of my identity that uh, I would try to live this life of promoting the oneness of religion, you know, and being a friend to all faiths without prejudice. Mm-hmm. And I would just sort of show up at various faith settings and proclaim, you know, mm-hmm. my truth, you know. Hey, I'm the guy that believes in all the religion. You yeah. Know? Now, Philippe, did you get this sense of the oneness of religion before or after reading the Quran? I was getting it before. And the Quran was sort of the climax of my spiritual journey, I would say. Because, of course, the Quran is a magnificent text. And really, in the Quran, you actually see progressive revelation talked about uh, very clearly. I didn't know that's what it was at the time. Now, what do you mean by progressive revelation? Well, I mean the, the sense of God sending messengers to all the peoples of the world throughout time with a book, with teachings, and that each of them would sort of precede the others. You know, one would come, and then another would come, and another would come. And of course, you know, the Quran taught that Muhammad was the latest of these messengers, and that he was the seal of these messengers, and that his book fulfilled the previous revelations of the Word of God, that it brought about completeness and fulfillment, and that people should recognize this, and recognize the peace that would come through submission to God, to Allah, and to God's law, which was for all humanity and not just for this or that faith community. So the Quran kind of brought it all together. The only problem was, was that there was a, in my experience, there was a real sort of disconnect between the magnificent vision of the human being and the human being's relationship with God in the Quran and the behavior of people who identified as Muslims, which I, I felt was not in line with the Quran. Like, for instance, uh, the Quran explicitly forbids breaking the religion into sects and denominations. And yet people were always talking about this Sunni Shiite stuff. And I would say, well, look, it says right here, don't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how can you go around professing this identity, identifying with this group, when really there's only one God and there's only one religion, and there's no such thing as a Sunni. There's no such thing as a Shia. Mm. You know, these are sort of human constructs. This isn't what the Quran teaches. And of course, this was in the 90s, and 
there are all kinds of things happening, even at that time in the world, in conflict related to religion and Muslims and Jews and so on. And, you know, I would look at this and I'd say, well, this is not what God wants. When you read his holy books, he tells you very clearly that he wants us to unite and to love each other and to serve him and to be humble. And so, you know, I didn't feel like I could be a part of any particular community in the full sense of the word because the various followers of the different faiths seem to have trouble living according to the teachings as I understood them, reading the word of God for myself. So that was what was missing. Because I had these ideas, but I didn't have a community to be involved with. And so I said, well, look, I sort of said, well, I don't think such a community exists. I'm going to do my own thing. And that's what I did. You know, I studied, I prayed, I tried to be of service to others. I tried to change my conduct and shed myself of the variety of behaviors that are typical of young adults in college, like drinking and sex and so on. And you tried to be the best soul I could be. And then one day, I went to the store, which was my pattern. I would scratch up whatever little bit of money I had at the end of the week on a Friday, and I would go blow all my cash on books about religion. <laughs> and so I went to um, this big store in South Hadley, one of these big radio, you know, multimedia kind of places. I think it was in the Hadley Mall or whatever they call it. I went there, and I went to the religion section. I grabbed a stack of books, and I saw this book, and it had the word Baha'i on it. I said, oh, this is a religion. I should read about it. Now, have you heard the name before that? I had seen the name on an interfaith calendar in an office about a year before, and there was a picture of the Baha'i temple in India, and so I assumed that it was some sort of Hindu religion, some sort of Hindu sect. I didn't know anything about it. But I said, oh, this is a religion. I should study it because I've read about everything else. And I grabbed the book, put it in my pile, went home, read everything I had, picked up the book, and I read it from cover to cover in a single night. And then I went back and I studied it in detail. I took copious notes and learned a lot about the faith from this book, it was called Elements of the Baha'i Faith. It was a little bitty thing, but it was quite informative. And I found myself very attracted to the way that Baha'u'llah described the oneness of religion in this concept of progressive revelation, which finally was actually said clearly by somebody. I said, that's exactly what I think. And he explained it so much better than me. And it makes so much sense. And then I was also really interested in the administrative order, the covenant. Now, what are all these things that you're referring to? Yeah, well, I learned that Baha'is had a certain system. You know, they didn't have clergy, uh, which was really new for me. That was a really different concept. That they organized their communities around elected, consultative groups of people that were chosen by the community. And I really liked that. I like the idea of making decisions through consultation, the idea of people coming together to talk together in a spirit of love and a mutual search for the truth and not being sort of political and pushing a narrow agenda. And it was really interesting because what I saw in the Baha'i faith was this really a nice integration of my, my concerns with social justice and social change and also my desire to lead a deeply spiritual and religious committed life 
and that there was a community of people that were trying to do that, which blew me away because I didn't know that the Baha'is existed. You know, I thought I was going to have to do this on my own, <laughs> you know. And so I decided to seek out the Baha'is, and, you know, being who I was and being an imaginative person, I saw it as a quest. I was going to seek out the Baha'is and learn more about this religion. But the thing is, the book didn't tell you how to find Baha'is. <laughs> it just said the Baha'is exist. So I said, well, you know, I mean, it didn't have any. It didn't have anything like an address or anything. It didn't say look at the phone, but it didn't say anything. So I'm like, well, where are these people? So I said, okay, let me call the Unitarians because the Unitarians are very open and they know people from different religions, and I bet you they'd know some Baha'is and know where to find them. And so I called the Unitarian Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. I got on the phone. I said, hi, my name is Philippe. I'm a student at UMass, and I'm looking for a Baha'i. And the woman said, what? You get the wrong number. <laughs> so I said it again. You know, I said, I'm looking for a Baha'is. And she said, well, I know a Baha'i. I'll give you her phone number. So she gives me the phone number. I call the number, and a guy gets on with a very deep Spanish accent, and there's a lot of clinging and clanging in the background and noise. And I said, hi, uh, my name is Philippe. I'm looking for a Baha'i. He said, well, this is a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> But my wife is a Baha'i, but she's in Mexico. She's not here. I said, oh. He said, but I know a Baha'i. I'll give you her phone number. <laughs> so he gave me this woman's phone number. It turned out that it was Jeannie Hunt in Northampton. I called Jeannie Hunt, told her my tale, and she said, I felt the same way before I became a Baha'i. I used to be a Christian. And you know they're Baha'is at UMass which was a total shock because I didn't know that there were Baha'is at UMass. And so she gave me the phone number of someone in the Baha'i club. And this person came and he took me to what's called a fireside, which is one of these informal gatherings to learn about the Baha'i faith. And it was really quite interesting because the, the woman giving the presentation was from the Solomon Islands, uh, but she was Persian, which was very interesting. And she was talking about Tahereh, and the equality of women and men. And it was sort of interesting because one of the things I had done as a student was I'd done some women's studies at the school. So I was very interested in the equality of women and men. And so that's what she talked about. You know? So who is Tahereh? Tahereh was one of the early believers in Iran. She was one of the foremost disciples of the Bab, which means the gate in Arabic who was one of the twin founders of the Baha'i faith, and she eventually gave her life for the cause that she championed, and she was a hero, a, a woman hero of the Baha'i religion. And here I was listening to a woman talk about Tahereh. And then when we started to talk, I had a lot to say because I'd been reading this book. So I said all this stuff about the Baha'i faith, and the Baha'is were really perplexed and curious about me, because they said, well, who are you? <laughs> and where did you come from? And how do you know all these things about the Baha'i faith? So I told them my tale and how I had found the faith. There was just a lot of love and curiosity. But given my attachment to the Word of God, I was really excited to read more of Baha'i scripture. And I was much more focused on that at the time than the people, who were lovely people. But I said, give me the books. <laughs> you know? Sure. 
I want to read them. I want to study the words. Yeah, give me the goods. And so I got a copy of the Hidden Words which and the Kitabi Gan, both of which are books written by Mahawala. Yes, these are books written by Mahawala. And I took them and I read them and I drank deep of their beautiful lyrical words and teachings. And I had that same old feeling. You know, it was like being in the presence of an old lover. Mm. I could hear God's voice so clearly in the words of Baha'u'llah. And I said, this is, the, this is the voice of God. This is the shepherd. And I've heard his voice. It was mm. so clear. But, you know, I took conversion seriously. And I knew that this would be a lifelong commitment and that I shouldn't rush into it. So I spent about a month really studying and praying and spending time with the Baha'is, the youth and the adults in Amherst. This is all in Amherst. Before I made up my mind, then I went to a presentation about the holy places of the Baha'i faith in Israel, which are in Haifa and in Akka. Now, Philip, maybe you could explain how is it that there are holy places in Israel when the origins of the Baha'i faith is in Persia, Iran? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, my understanding is that during the time of Baha'u'llah, when he arose to teach the Baha'i faith, he encountered a lot of opposition from both the religious and political leaders of Iran uh, who saw his teachings as threatening. And they sent him into exile four times, first to Baghdad, uh, to Constantinople, to Adrianople, and then finally to the prison colony of Akka, which at that time was in Palestine, in Ottoman-controlled Palestine. And Baha'u'llah ended up spending the remaining years of his life as a prisoner in exile in that area, and he passed away there. And so that's why his resting place is there. And then it was the wish of Baha'u'llah that the remains of the Blessed Bab uh, be interred on Mount Carmel, which is in Haifa. And so through quite an adventure, which probably I shouldn't get into now because it would take too long, that was brought about. So now Haifa and Akka are the spiritual and the administrative center of the Baha'i world, all of which, of course, took place long before the State of Israel was founded, which was in 1948. So that's how that came about. But um, I went to this evening. There was a young person who had been serving at the Baha'i World Center in Israel, and she had some slides and pictures of the holy places. I had such a deep sense of joy and exaltation seeing the images of the holy shrines that I said to myself, I said, if I can have these feelings about these shrines, which are not my shrines, I must be a believer. I must believe. And so I decided that evening that I should embrace the Baha'i faith and join the Baha'i community. But sort of being who I was, with a flair for the dramatic, I told the Baha'is that I was going to wait a week to do this, and they said, why? I said, because I want to do it on the full moon. I got this whole elaborate notion of declaring my belief in Baha'u'llah on the full moon and enrolling in the Baha'i faith. So I waited the week with great anticipation. And that evening, I recited the short obligatory prayer, which is one of the prayers that Baha'is are required to say once a day from memory. It was the first thing that I had memorized. And then I signed my, my card, my registration card, and then I went to bed. 
and then that was it. And then I was a Baha'i. The next day I went to dawn prayers with the Baha'i youth and shared with them that I had declared they were very ecstatic and happy. And then I didn't know what to do with this registration card, so I carried it around in my pocket. I thought that's what you were supposed to do with it. And then I ended up going to a fireside, and at the end of the fireside, I was told by the woman who was hosting that the next day that they were going to have this thing called a unit convention, which is where they elect delegates to elect the National Spiritual Assembly. She said, but, you know, Philippe, unfortunately, because you're not a Baha'i, you can't go. I said, well, I am a Baha'i. And I pulled my card out of my pocket, and I showed it to her. (laughs) It was really quite (laughs) priceless, her expression. (laughs) And then someone who was with me explained that I didn't know that I was supposed to give it to the Secretary of the Assembly, who happened to be the same woman. And so then I was officially a Baha'i, a member of the Baha'i community as of that moment. So that's the bit of a long story, but that's how I became a Baha'i. How would you say becoming a Baha'i changed the direction of your life? Wow, I would say that it changed the direction of my life really in every way, but I think that the first thing it did for me was it, it really assisted with a process of healing and reconciliation in my family. Because of my difficulties as a youth, I had experienced some estrangement from my family members. And one of the things that Baha'u'llah emphasized in his teachings is the importance of showing respect for one's parents. It went deep into my heart. And one of the things I immediately did when I became a Baha'i was I resolved to change my behavior towards my parents completely. And one of the things I said I would do was that I would call them every single week without fail and talk to them for a significant amount of time on the phone. And that's a practice which I have kept for the past 11 years since that time. And it was interesting because at the beginning it was hard because it wasn't natural. You know, I had to get over some things. But really it was the love of God that made me pick up the phone every week because I said I'd made a commitment to Baha'u'llah to do this. And in time my heart began to change and I began to feel great love and forgiveness and Even my parents remarked that suddenly I was very happy. I came home from school and I was laughing and talking and embracing them. You know, my parents, of course, were not Baha'is. And I think that that was the first sign for them that this religion was something positive in my life, that they saw such a marked change in my attitude and behavior towards them. I think about my father in particular. And since I've become a Baha'i, I have not had an argument with my father in 11 years since I became a Baha'i. And uh, I absolutely believe that that's because of the influence of the Baha'i faith, because that was not the way things were before at all. Mm. It was quite dramatic, the change in my heart and the change in our relationship. So that was one example. Another thing that happened was recognizing that I could participate as part of a community, a global community of people that were trying to put these teachings into effect It really expanded my whole view of the world. It deepened and spiritualized my understanding of social problems, whereas before they were very political and very material. My way of thinking about the world and society, I got more involved in spiritual approaches to problems rather than engaging in partisan politics and social agitation and things like my peers were doing 
I became very, very active and devoted in a faith community, which for me was a new thing, um, because I really hadn't done that since I was a child. And I had never done it of my own will before. So it was really a whole new experience for me. And I think that because I became a Baha'i as a young adult, I was 21, I don't take being part of a faith community for granted, because it really is a new experience, something that I didn't grow up with. We only have a few more minutes, Philippe, so I want you to tell me about your blog, the name of it and its purpose. Sure, yeah. So I have a blog. It's called Baha'i Thought. Baha'i Thought? Yes, Baha'i Thought. The purpose of Baha'i Thought is to try to apply the teachings of the Baha'i faith to contemporary social issues and challenges facing humanity. And so the inspiration for the blog was really feeling like there weren't enough Baha'i voices involved in public discourse about what was happening in our society. And I wanted to have a way to speak directly to the problems that people are dealing with and speak specifically from a Baha'i point of view in a very direct way and talk about how the teachings of this faith offer solutions to these problems in a way of reorienting our thinking, our behavior, our approaches to the problems that we face in the world. And if somebody wants to find your blog, how would they do that? Yeah, the web address is www.bahaithoughtalloneword.com. And they can also just do a Google search for it. It's very easy to find. And I understand you're about to become a father? <laughs> yes, I am. My wife and I are expecting a child possibly any day. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad it held off long enough through this interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really quite wonderful yeah. and a real blessing. Yeah. Of course, I'm grateful to the Baha'i faith for my spouse, who I met through the Baha'i community, who's mm-hmm. a wonderful Baha'i. Her name is Mora, mm-hmm. who I probably wouldn't have met otherwise, and really for assisting me in, in being in a process of spiritual development and maturation that made me you know, attractive to a person like her. Because I was a very different kind of person before I became a Baha'i. And so I'm so grateful and so happy. And I'm also happy that our child will have the benefit of growing up in a faith community. Because I didn't have that, I really cherish that. I think it's the most precious gift that we're going to offer to him, um, is the chance to grow up in the Baha'i community. Well, Philippe, thank you so much for sharing your story. Sure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Philippe Copeland. A Baha'i who grew up in search of a spiritual community that recognized what he recognized, which was the oneness of all religions. Please visit his blog at www.bahaithought.com, where he addresses current events from a Baha'i perspective. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.